Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider what's it like to be so eerily talented that you can create spooky, spooky, and gorgeous art to accompany your spooky, spooky, and monstrously successful novels. We are releasing this episode the week of Halloween, which is perfect timing given our guest, whose name is simply Brahm. Brahm has created a series of award-winning horror novels that he both writes and illustrates. They include The Devil's Rose, a modern Western set in hell, The Plucker, a picture book for adults in which the fairy tale tradition collides with vileness and depravity, The Child Thief, a nightmarish retelling of the Peter Pan myth, Krampus the Yule Lord, a tale of revenge between Krampus and Santa, Lost Gods, one man's determined trek through purgatory, and his latest, Slewfoot, a historical horror novel of witchery and vengeance set in colonial America. Have I ever told you how much I love Krampus? No, it has never come up in part because I don't even know what Krampus is. Oh, oh, Krampus. <laughs> he's a German Christmas figure. And instead of being beneficent like St. Nicholas, like Santa Claus, he's terrifying. He looks like <laughs> Satan. He has horns and he scares children. And huh. he's just, yes. you know. <laughs> that is fabulous. I can yes. totally see both of us loving that. Yes. He's, I'm totally into Krampus. But anyway, <laughs> we took one look at the art for Slewfoot, Brahm's most recent book, and we knew that we really wanted to talk to him about his visual art as well as his writing. The images are spectacular. They're so lush and atmospheric. They're creepy and beautiful at the same time. And he he uses kind of a classical style in these paintings of innovative monsters. You really have to take a look if you don't know them already, and we'll link to a few images in our show notes. But make sure you keep in mind when you are looking that Brahm says that Norman Rockwell has been a huge inspiration for his art, <laughs> which could not be less obvious from... <laughs> from the face of the paintings. But actually, Brahm says he's been influenced by Rockwell's interest in characters. And that definitely comes through. There's a lot of character in his paintings. Yes, absolutely. Brahm has also said that it takes a tremendous amount of energy and focus to become competitive in the illustration field and that he spent his 20s perfecting his craft. We asked if he'd tell us about the work he had to put in to become the artist that he is. Here's what he said. If this was like having to go to school and learn something, I would have never learned it. It it never was work for me. It was a passion. Anytime I had a a pencil in my hand, I was drawing my earliest memories, you know, crayons, just drawing dinosaurs and monsters from as far back as I can remember. So, you know, in essence, that is how you learn the, the craft is just from the joy of practice. Beyond that, there is a certain academic element that, you know, can take a passion to that next level. Part of that, I guess, is just the competitive nature of 
seeing the art you like and trying to figure out how to get your own artwork to that level, which, which, you know, leads to doing deeper dives and, and research. And in my case, I would seek out artists that I liked in my community and meet with them and, and try to gain from them, you know, additional knowledge. And you've also said that in the early days of painting, each painting you do is a little better than the one before, which is really energizing. But then you get to a level with painting where the gains are very slow. And that if you're not doing work that's challenging you, you find yourself falling back, which can be a soul killer. So you need to generate new creative challenges. Is there anything about Slewfoot that felt like a new and energizing creative challenge? Yeah, sometimes the step backwards can be in your control and sometimes they're out of your control in, in the illustration field, especially when I was working on commercial commissions, it was often my client not allowing me to grow. In other words, they liked what I did before, so they would like me to repeat that. I find that writing can also fall on that path. You know, the, my earliest efforts at writing, just like with the art, the growth was so dramatic between attempts in with art, when I find myself getting stale, I will like try to paint a lot bigger, maybe a lot smaller, maybe try a different type of brush, maybe monochromatic instead of color. So one of the things you might notice on my novels is each one is very different. There are consistent themes, but it would be very difficult for me to do sequels or even series because I love the challenge of just a whole brand new approach. And now up to your question with Slewfoot. Slewfoot was really challenging in, in a couple of ways. The first being it was historical uh, fiction. And, and I was amazed at both how interesting and confining that was. This book being set in uh, colonial America in the 1600s, you know, I really wanted it to feel authentic. And it led me then to a deep dive into history to try to get things as close as possible. And at least if I'm going to fudge, I want to know what I'm fudging. So it's a common frustration among writers, this writer included, certainly, um, that they aren't able to bring into being the book that they envision when they start a project. And I'm interested in both whether you experience that when you write and whether you experience it when you paint. Are you able to get the vision in your head onto the page? And is it easier in one medium versus the other? You guys have really good questions. Um, so with painting... How I would describe it is, is there's there's like three stages to a painting. There's the, the conception stage where you're, you know, the painting has infinite potential and you have this incredible vision in your head and it's just like, yes, I see this, I'm going to bring it to life. And there's excitement, you go into it. And there's the middle stage, the, the muddle of the painting where <laughs> you, it, it's the painting looks really bad and you're realizing that it's not going to, attain that the vision that's in your head and there's a little bit of a letdown at least for me when I finish because in my painting I never approach that vision and, and I don't even you know know if it's possible because a vision is, is multi-layered so usually when I finish a painting I'm disappointed and I put it away in the closet and pull it out a couple of months later and I usually I tend to like the painting a couple months later and Part of why I feel that so is because I forget that original vision. I'm no longer comparing it to what I had hoped it would be in my head, and I'm evaluating it on what it is. With writing, I almost feel like 
the writing is a little more magical for me. I, to me, it's all role playing. It's this magical land of make believe. You know, I, I take on the the role of each character that I'm writing, and the characters tend to surprise me. They tend to, you know, one, once you understand the character in your story and you have the setup, it's fun to watch them react and do things perhaps you didn't expect. So in some ways, I, I enjoy the writing, uh, the finished product of writing, perhaps more than the finished product of art. I have to say your description of how you feel about your painting is so close to how I feel about my writing. So I guess it's just different for everybody. And I'm curious with Slewfoot, for example, do the pictures come first or does the story come first? I've always written to some degree. It's mostly comics when I was a child. You know, I, I would take paper and draw a picture and write captions and get a stapler and I'd make a little book. And, you know, I'm essentially doing the same thing today. But what happened is, is I was really focused on my illustration career in my 20s. And somewhere towards the end of my 20s, my early 30s, I, I burnt out on painting, partly because I wasn't had the opportunity to grow. Commissions were becoming repetitive, as I've mentioned before. And I wanted to get more control of my art. So I went back to my love of writing to be able to write a story that I wanted to illustrate. So in the beginning, it was about what I wanted to illustrate. My first novel, The Plucker, which is a twisted children's book for adults about the land of make-believe and monsters under the bed colliding, so to speak. You know, I wanted to draw these toys and monsters fighting. So I wrote a story around what I wanted to paint. As I've matured as a writer and hopefully understand a bit more of what makes an interesting dynamic or interesting conflict and interesting character situations, it seems like the spark of my ideas are, are more idea-driven, much more about what is going to make a good book. So usually that's where the spark of the idea starts. But mm -hmm. as far as the process, it actually feels like two creatives working together, separate creatives, the writer in me and the artist in me. There's things I find in the art that I would have never dreamed of if I was just writing, and I put those into the writing, and, and the other way around as well. Also, I, I would add being able to take a break from each to perhaps write for three months and then set that aside for a couple of weeks while I do sketches and dwell into that helps keep both disciplines fresh. And it also helps me have fresh eyes on the content when I go back to it. That's amazing. It's like you're a one-man artist colony, you know, but <laughs> 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 by having a community all within your own talents. Well, it's, it's really funny when, when the artist in me and the writer in me, like, spar, like we're, we're at odds, <laughs> yes. like the writer wants black fire and the artist in me says, black fire, who, how do you paint black fire? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I, I can imagine it might get a little complicated. Yeah. I, I actually have a question for you. You mentioned The Plucker, which is was your first book that you wrote and illustrated. It's a picture book for adults. I've heard you say that publishers, you had a hard time finding a publisher for that. They didn't get it and they wanted you to change the text to more of a children's version. And I want to ask you, you know, whether they were right. You know, publishers tend to have a very kind of uh a little bit of a rigid idea of market and genre and what the market will bear. And I'm yeah. always interested to know when someone is able to go around that thinking, whether it bears out or not. Yes. With a plucker, I have to say, uh, like you mentioned, 
I took this book out and there's probably, you know, we probably got five or six rejections from major publishers who, just like you said, felt more than anything that this book didn't have a place on the shelf. And especially at the time, this was the early, middle 2000s, early 2000s, you know, it was all about space in the bookstore shelf. That's where people went to find books. And if you have an illustrated adult children's book, so to speak, <laughs> that's it's, it's kind of hard to where to place that. Do you place it in the children's section? No, this book is too intense for children. Um, in the adult section, you know, the oversized picture books tend to be, you know, art books. So the other concern was there was a discomfort with the fact that at that time, there just really wasn't a market for that type of illustrated novel. But getting back to your question, if sometimes the publisher has an insight, I think it's good for everybody to listen to each other. I, in, in this case with the plucker, I do feel that I was a little bit ahead of the curve on what people liked based on what I liked. Um, in this case, it did prove out that, you know, that book sold really well and did very well. But I do sort of agree with the idea that maybe that book didn't need to be, uh, you know, I at that time, I kind of felt a need to make it more adult than it really needed to be for what I was trying to get. And by that, I mean, you know, there's a little, there's some profanity in there that I feel is kind of jarring. It feels just maybe a little out of context with it because the book is still intense just with monsters killing toys and the intensity of it. But I think any writer can get into that mode where if they could go back to a book they did 10 years ago and edit it, they would probably make some tweaks and changes. Eve, we've come to a part of this episode that I'm really excited about because you and I were talking a little recently about Brahms' inspirations for his creepy stories, and we started considering whether we had creepy stories of our own. And as that conversation took some twists and turns, we discovered that we have both had psychic moments. Mm -hmm which I guess is sufficiently spooky to each of us that we never once told each other in all of our years of friendship. That's right. And we still haven't actually told the stories of these <laughs> moments. Not yet. No. So should I share one of mine now? Yes, please. I'm going to save mine for our upcoming episode on dreams, which I am so excited about, but I cannot wait to hear yours. Okay. So here's my story. When I was a freshman in college, I had a boyfriend named Jason. And June after freshman year, Jason and I were spending the day together. I went to his house on Long Island and I slept over. And our plan was to drive from Long Island to his grandmother's lake house in New Jersey and just have a really lovely day, just the two of us at the lake house. And we wake up. It is the most glorious, gorgeous weather. We have no responsibilities. We should be in a fabulous mood. But in fact, the two of us are in terrible mood. And we talk about it and we both have this awful sense of foreboding. Like hmm. something terrible is going to happen today. And, hmm. but you know, what are you going to, you know, we talk about it, but then we move on. The first thing that happened, we're driving on the LIE and we get into this tiny fender bender, like no big deal, but you know, Jason gently rear ends the car in front of us and stop and go traffic, no harm done. But again, sort of unsettling. Right. We get to New Jersey, we get to his grandmother's lake house, which is charming, and we have a perfect day. We take the boat out, we catch a fish, we cook the fish, like everything is just, it should be the most beautiful day. And we're just feeling worse and worse and worse. Hmm. So we get to the end of the day and Jason says, do you want to come back? 
you know, to Long Island with me, but our plan had been for me to meet my parents and that I would go home to New Jersey with them and Jason would go back to his house. And I said, no, you know, we have this plan. My parents are coming. Let's stick to it. He says, fine. We meet up with my parents. I go home with them. Jason proceeds to drive home. It's now getting dark. And this is pre-cell phones. I need to make clear. I go home and I am feeling worse and worse and worse. And my parents are telling me that I am being a drama queen. I'm being ridiculous. And at about nine o'clock at night, the tension becomes unbearable. And I go into my parents' bedroom and I say, something terrible has happened. And they say, you are a drama queen. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, call Jason's mom. So I call Jason's mom and she's like, no, I haven't heard from him, but I wouldn't expect him to be home till 10 o'clock anyway. You know, I'm sure everything's fine. So I, I go back into my bedroom and I am convinced that something terrible has happened. And finally at about 1030 or 11, the phone rings. And what had happened was Jason dropped me off with my parents and he was driving across the Cross Bronx Expressway, which is a notoriously awful road with lots of curves and no shoulders and huge. There was a section where there are huge walls. You can't even get off the road if you want to. And while he's going around one of these curves, he has a tire blowout. Oh no. And there's nothing he can do. He just is there. He can't get out of the car and he just has to wait. And miraculously, a tow truck happens to drive by, sees him there, says, I can't help you right now. I'm picking up someone else. But he puts a cone behind Jason's car. Mm. But it's dark and Jason is just waiting for the inevitable. And sure enough, at about nine o'clock at night, a truck comes around the corner, doesn't see Jason in time, slams into the car. Thank God Jason has his seatbelt on because... It would have been really bad had he not. He blacks out momentarily. (gasps) When he opens his eyes, the passenger seat where I would have been sitting is in flames. And thank God God he's an athlete with incredible reflexes. He whips off his seatbelt. He leaps out of the car just as the car explodes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, is like hysterical running back and forth on the Cross Bronx Expressway, but, you know, survives, has some scratches from the broken glass, but is basically fine. But we knew, we knew all day long this was going to happen. And I will tell you, Jason is a scientist. He majored in science. He became a doctor. If you call him up right now, he will tell you this was a psychic experience. Like there's no question in both of our minds that somehow we knew something like this was going to happen. And that at precisely the moment that he got hit by the truck, that was the moment that I went marching into my parents' room, something terrible has happened. Oh my God. I have chills. Yeah. I have chills. Yeah. True story. Wow. True story for which, you know, do I believe in psychic stuff? I believe there are things for which I have no explanation. And this is one of those things. Yeah. Wow, that is quite a story. Yeah. And I am really regretting that we did not think to ask Brahm if he'd had any psychic experiences. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't you think he has? We so screwed up. Yes. We did at least ask what set him on the path to write Slewfoot and why he chose to set it in Connecticut in the 17th century. And here's what he said. 
what I wanted more than anything were those those accused of witchcraft to really be witches, for them to be able to conjure some sort of pagan creature to help them or, or even use something to protect them against this oppressive zealotry that was coming at them. So that was the, the original inspiration. So when I started digging into history, one of the first things I found that ended up being a huge plot element to my story was, why is it almost always women that are accused of witchcraft? And not only that, if you look at the historical hangings and punishments for witchcraft, so often it's widows, you know, the stereotypical older woman as a witch. Well, what I came to discover, especially in the early colonial times and Puritan times, women were not allowed to own property. Only men could handle business manners. Women weren't allowed to even add their voice or opinions to anything to do with, you know, the business matters, with ownership, etc. But there was one exception to that. And if a woman's husband was to die, essentially she takes over his role. Mm -hmm. God ordains that she then becomes, you know, his place in that society. So what you have happen in this one rare circumstance is a woman is suddenly equal to a man if her husband dies. And you can't have that. Well, yes, of course, <laughs> that must seem very out of place in a society that, you know, has a very rigid uh, patriarchy like that. But what really happens is as soon as somebody has a dispute or perhaps that was their brother's land and they want that land or they're their neighbors and they want that land, they can't bully or, or make this woman leave. She is now equal footing to them. But there's one way around that. If you accuse them of witchcraft, they lose all their rights. As a writer, you know, I couldn't wait to dig into that story. Yeah. You dedicated Slewfoot to your mother, quote, who always said I could when others said I could not. Can you share an example or two of times when someone said you could not? I think more than anything, my family is a bit blue collar. And the idea that I could make a living as an artist was just very foreign to a lot of my family. But at every turn, you know, my mother was always like, yes, uh, whether it was as simple as I'd like to spend, you know, this is in the 70s, $100 on a, a drawing table. You know, my dad would balk at that. It's like, you know, he can use the table where we eat. But my mom would always push for these things. You know, was it to get me good art supplies? Um, even when it came time to go to art school, you know, she was the one that always pushed and believed that I could do this thing, that there was a way for me to make a living by this. And, you know, that confidence really made a difference. And so that's, and I, and I don't mean to say anything bad about my dad because he was incredibly supportive in every other way. But I will say that when I was going off to art school, when he was young, he went off into the military and, and it's how he escaped a small town and, 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 you know, broadened his career and his life. But as I was going off to art school, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, if this art thing doesn't work out, the Air Force treats an enlisted man really well. So, <laughs> so, so that was my vote of confidence from my dad. Basically, he was saying, like, this doesn't work out. It's not on me. Don't come back home here. You just right. go on your way. I had a very similar dynamic in my family. I was an opera singer. That was the first thing I did. And my mother wow. was totally yeah. behind it, you know, total confidence. And my dad would call and he'd say, how's work going? And he wouldn't be referring to the music. He'd be referring to my day job, which was working as a, <laughs> you know, as a secretary. And I think it just, it came from a place of, you know, love and the terrible, the abject fear that yes. I will be living on the street, you know, that, yes. <laughs> that I'm never going to be able to support myself. 
My dad said at one point, he said, they went to visit New Orleans and he came back. He said, yeah, there were a lot of artists working in the street square and they were really good, but they were working out there on the street. Yeah. That was his, <laughs> like, he thought it was a, a bad thing that they were working at the square in the street. And his fear was, yeah, that's where I would be as, as a street artist. <laughs> Can I ask, did either of your parents or other family members have the same kind of talent? From my father's side came a very focused, determined attributes, you know, that I really attribute that side of the family for giving me the guts and the determination to pursue my dreams. But it's uh, my mother's side where, you know, we have the musicians and the artists. My mom used to paint. So I feel fortunate that, you know, I got a little bit of right brain, left brain from them. And, it, you know, because in this day and age, it takes more than talent to make a living at art. You do need a certain business sense and, you know, a thick skin and a, and a lot of determination. Eve, I feel like I should know more about this than I do. Were there artists and musicians in your family when you were growing up? And how did your family respond when you announced that you were becoming an opera singer? Well, we were definitely not an opera family. I grew up going to the ballet. We went to Broadway shows. We went to classical concerts. But I didn't go to my first opera, which was Carmen, until after I started singing. Hmm. But there were dancers in my family. There were writers in my family. My sister played the piano. My grandmother on my father's side was a highly accomplished pianist. She could play anything, but she played with absolutely no feeling whatsoever. <laughs> Zero. It was remarkable. She would bang her way through Beethoven or Chopin, and she'd curse every time she made a mistake, which was, <laughs> you had to be there. She was, you know, four foot 10. But to answer your second question, apart from concerns about my ability to make a living, which we talked about with Brahm, my family was very supportive of my singing career. Mm. And what about you? Were there creative people and how did they feel about you being a writer? My Aunt Marianne is a writer, but by and large, everyone in my family was is a business, is or was a business person. And I know my parents would have loved for me to go into the family business, but I have to say they have also been very, very supportive of my writing. I'm not sure, I'm not positive how they would feel if like Brahm, you know, I wrote a modern Western set in hell, you know, our fairy tales <laughs> full of vileness and depravity, but I bet they'd still be proud. And on that hopeful note, yes. I'm going to say <laughs> that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Brahm at www.bromart.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.